Laura Shin is the host of Unchained, a podcast about cryptocurrencies and decentralized technology. For every episode, Laura does significant research and preparation, so the content turns out polished and high quality. Her enthusiasm for the subject of cryptocurrencies comes through in her reporting. Podcasting about cryptocurrencies requires walking a fine line. Cryptocurrencies have a mixture of drama and exciting technology, which are both great for a journalist, but you can't get too deep in the drama because the podcast will feel like a tabloid, and you can't get too deep in the technical weeds because the listener will fall asleep. So there is a fine line to walk. Laura joins the show to discuss how she got into reporting on cryptocurrencies, why she got so obsessed with the subject, and she also discusses her experience as a solo entrepreneurial journalist, which I can kind of relate to. Before I begin today, I do want to mention Software Daily, which is a place that we have created to post software projects and discuss them with other people, as well as discuss the podcast. You can go to softwaredaily.com and post your software projects or discuss the podcast. If you're posting a software project, you can find collaborators and feedback for your project. So it's great if you have an open source application or a side project you've been tinkering with or an academic computer science paper. We would love to see all those things on softwaredaily.com. And if your project is especially interesting, we will send you a Software Engineering Daily hoodie or a t-shirt. Or we might even have you on the podcast to discuss what you're building. I've been posting some of my own side projects, and I would love to see what other people in the community are working on. Actually, I'm looking at the community right now, and there are two recent blockchain visualization projects that are on the forum at the same time, which is interesting. If you want to post your own stuff, come to softwaredaily.com. I'd love to see you there. With that, let's get on with this episode. Laura Shin, you are the host of Unchained and Unconfirmed, two of my favorite podcasts about cryptocurrencies. Thanks for coming to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me on the show. You started covering cryptocurrencies in 2013 for Forbes. What was your perception of cryptocurrencies in those days? Well, actually, so just to correct it, I actually started in 2015. I think maybe in 2013, I might have written a couple articles, but definitely had nowhere near the understanding that I later obtained when I began covering it more regularly. So while some early articles did come out at that time, I definitely would not say that I started covering it then. However, when I did start paying more attention in 2015, those were the blockchain, not Bitcoin years, which um, was back when a lot of Wall Streeters got interested in the technology. But because at that time, Bitcoin was affiliated with the dark web and often thought of as criminal money, I think a lot of them shied away from showing an interest in Bitcoin itself. And so, and frankly, you know, if we think about it, because Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer payment system and many of these other crypto assets are peer-to-peer payment systems, they basically cut out middlemen like financial services institutions. And so I think a lot of them thought that they could use blockchains to make their services more efficient and thereby 
preventing the disruption that could happen from a service like Bitcoin that is peer-to-peer and cuts out the middlemen. So at that time, I actually thought that there was something to that, frankly, which I'm a little bit embarrassed to say right now, because as we've seen, I think we can all say that the public blockchains are so much more powerful and interesting than anything going on in the private sector. However, at that time, I remember that I interviewed Coinbase. You know, I actually, at that time, I was a freelancer for Forbes, but they had put me in charge of what they, a new list they were launching called the Forbes FinTech 50 list, along with another reporter at Forbes. And she and I divvied up the list into different categories and each took a category and I took digital currencies. And I remember that when I vetted Coinbase for the list, I was trying to get them to explain how Bitcoin would be adopted because this was the days when Bitcoin had crashed down from a high of more than 1200 down to it was kind of languishing in the $200 range. And they said, oh, well, you know, it's a lot cheaper than Visa. And so you save on the fees. And I said, oh, but you know, consumers don't pay the fees. So how are they going to know that they're saving anything? And they said, oh, well, you know, the merchant can pass on a savings of 1% to the, to the user if they <laughs> pay with Bitcoin. And I remember thinking, this is totally not convincing. And I did not put them on the FinTech 50 list. And instead, I put kind of, you know, these more enterprise blockchain companies on the list. And so it's just so fascinating to fast forward a few years and everything has changed and it's so different now. So that was really my impression at the beginning. I really thought, oh, wow, this is going to make our financial services more efficient and it's going to enable these companies to offer new products and services that were not possible before with the existing financial infrastructure. What you're referring to there about being mildly embarrassed about making some early incorrect judgment calls, whether it's not calling private blockchains. By the way, to the point of private blockchains, it's still very early. Private blockchains could be very impactful. They could be very important. We still don't quite know yet, but I think all of us, I mean, most of us, made some kind of error in judgment early on when they were watching this space from afar. And I feel like one nice lesson of watching cryptocurrencies rise and And even as I was covering it and not really taking part in it as an investor or really taking it seriously other than just covering it at a skin-deep level, it's just made me realize that I'm not very open-minded, you know, and that I need to be more open-minded when it comes to technology and, and new ideas because I didn't take it seriously for the first eight years. and It makes me question my own open-mindedness. Oh, that's interesting. Well, so there's a couple of things I want to say to that. So first, I disagree with you about how it's too soon to tell whether or not private blockchains will be transformative or not, because I think we know enough to say that, first of all, these companies move too slowly, I think, to really do anything that will sort of keep pace with the disruption that we're seeing over on the public blockchains, first of all. But second, I think just the idea that using a new technology to upgrade your systems and make them more efficient, that that would be revolutionary. I don't see that at all. You know, if we look at kind of some of the really big 
trends that have been happening in the public blockchains, like that is all super, super new. Like it is, as we've seen with the regulators there, you know, this is like just creating a whole new category of assets and that function in ways that previous assets just never functioned before. And so I think just if we look at kind of how global and 24-7 and fast these are, like there is just really no parallel in the existing financial markets. You know, like I've been frankly don't have a huge background in financial services, but from what I can tell, the only thing maybe that comes close to these markets, just even on the pure fact of them being open 24-7, 365 is like foreign exchange or something, which apparently the last market for that closes Friday night, like what is that, like Australia time or something? And then then 36 hours later, roughly, like the next market opens, I think, somewhere like in Australia. I forget. Someone explained this to me, but I might be mixing up the geographies. But the point is, even that's not 24-7, 365. So that was the first thing I wanted to say. And then the second part is that actually, so I was a little bit different from you in that I once I truly understood the technology, which, like I said, that only really occurred in 2015. So I don't know if I could see exactly where it was all going, but I definitely knew this was perhaps the biggest thing I'd ever learned about in my entire career. Hmm. And I knew kind of right away, like that I only wanted to write, write about this. And and well, actually, that, that took me a couple months. It definitely knew that I was obsessed in a way I'd never been obsessed with anything before ever, other than things in my personal life, like yoga or Argentine tango or, you know, but... <laughs> I remember that I took this trip and I had this other kind of like book idea that I was working on. And it was like a working vacation. Like I was, it was kind of like this writing retreat that I had set up for myself. And I remember that I couldn't get the work done on the original idea because I kept looking up and reading about Bitcoin. (laughs) So definitely from the start, there was something about this that just just really grabbed a hold of me and and like made me feel like, whoa, this is going to be huge. And this is going to change everything over the next few decades. And I still think that. So 2015, that, that means you were getting into this around the time that Ethereum launched. Were you skeptical of Ethereum or did you take that one seriously too? Because that was one where I had been talking to some Bitcoin maximalists when Ethereum came out and I was convinced by them to be very skeptical of this thing that I've now become, I've totally reversed my standing on. And that was another incident where I was like, oh, I really should not let myself be overly swayed by the strong opinions of anybody in in the space. And I should really just take everything with a grain of salt because once again, I was overly skeptical of something. Of course, you, you do need significant skepticism in the area, but when did you get convinced of Ethereum? Were you an, an, an early understander or were you skeptical from the early days? I did not even hear about Ethereum when it launched because when it launched was about two months after I even learned what a blockchain was. And so I wasn't quite into it enough. But also, I have to say, I was working on this huge magazine story it literally ended up being like the longest magazine story Forbes magazine ever published. And that was about blockchain technology and financial services. So I was kind of super, super deep in this other world and did not mm. hear about blockch- about uh, Ethereum until a while later. But I remember that I did not have the experience you had where a lot of Bitcoin maximalists 
treated, you know, uh, taught me to be skeptical of it. And instead, I had a lot of sources saying that this was the next big thing and that they thought a whole bunch of developers were moving over to that Mm. and that that had a lot more potential because of how limited the scripting language was in in Bitcoin. And it's funny because, you know, I'm not a technical person. So it took me kind of a while to understand what they meant by that. But now, obviously, I mean, we've seen such huge trends come out of Ethereum, you know, it's like the DAO, the initial coin offering trend, CryptoKitties, like now I fully understand, oh, this is, it's not even now, but you know, earlier, like a year or two, actually, it was more like summer 2016, where I think I really started to grasp the full potential of Ethereum. Because that was when everyone started telling me about what they were calling app coins at the time. (laughs) Uh, Which is so funny. It's so funny how, yeah, just even back then, we didn't have the term crypto assets, I think. I remember that I wrote about a white paper that Chris Berniski, who's one of the kind of premier analysts in the space, co-wrote with Adam White of Coinbase. And I remember that they, the, the white paper was about how Bitcoin heralded a new asset class, but they didn't have a name for it. And I remember that they were batting about different names in the white paper, like literally saying like, we could call it these different things. And I don't remember all of the names, but one of them, Chris and I actually were just laughing about recently was Consenso Bit. <laughs> <laughs> So I think crypto assets is much better. But <laughs> but yeah, at that time, people just really, you know, they, they knew something new was happening and they sort of understood, okay, this is a new asset class. These are investable and they can have all different applications and different functions. And so for that reason, you'll use them in different ways. But yeah, it was just so new. I remember Brian and Fred were they called it Wall Street 2.0. Oh my God, it's so funny to look back at these conversations I was having back then because, you know, now the space moves so fast that even just in, I guess, like a year and nine months, everything is quite different. It already has that dated, dusty flavor when you look back at magazine articles from 1994 or 1997 <laughs> when they're talking about the internet. Right, right. But yeah, but we do that at warp speed because now we have the internet to facilitate our conversations about all this stuff. (laughs) Yeah, the parlance updates much faster. (laughs) At this point, I'm pretty excited about Ethereum too. Although compared to what people are really excited about, which is that you can have this decentralized world computer. There's not a whole lot of applications that have actually been created on Ethereum. You have lots of dApp coins, but not a whole lot of dApps. Really, the only applications we've seen from Ethereum are the ability to make a token and the ability to make scarce collectible items via the crypto kitties sort of thing. I guess you could also say smart contracts, maybe there's some usage of escrow style things, although you could do that on on Bitcoin. So do you have a sense for when these dApps are going to actually happen on Ethereum or what the bottlenecks are? Oh, gosh. I mean, this is what is so interesting about the ICO craze and comparisons to 99 and 2000. I think as we saw in 99, 2000, the, a lot of 
how this stuff matures depends on infrastructure. And so even as we had back in the early days of the internet, people saying things like, oh, people are going to buy their groceries on the internet. So web van is a good idea. You know, it actually was a good idea. It's just that the timing wasn't right. You know, now we have Instacart. I use Instacart. I'm sure, you know, I know that now Amazon owns Whole Foods. They started a service where you can get your groceries in two hours. Like these are things that really did happen and got built, but the timing wasn't right. And so I don't think it's quite fair to criticize Ethereum just yet because there are so many basic functions of crypto assets that have not been built out that need to be built out. I mean, just the, the most basic, which I know a lot of people are working on this year. I can think of just five different companies on the off the top of my head that are working on this at different levels for different types of customers. But custody is one of them, right? I mean, I've written about this before, but it is so easy for individuals to have their Bitcoins or other crypto assets hacked. And this is different from saying that a blockchain can be hacked. I know that a lot of people have this misconception that because some exchanges have been hacked or that because individuals have lost their tokens, that that means that these blockchains are insecure. That's not the case. It's just that they function differently from the traditional financial services system where a company will manage your assets for you, right? But even then, I was just talking with Ari Paul on my podcast, and he made the good point that financial services hasn't really solved the problem either. What they have done is they've just put tons of insurance and physical bodyguards and physical <laughs> gates around these things. And so I actually found that a really fascinating point. But the thing is that, you know, here you dealing with crypto assets requires a fundamental psychological shift in the way you think about money and in the way you handle money, because it truly is digital cash. And when we think of things that are digital, generally, we think, oh, like my bank interface, you know, on the web, that's me like, or PayPal or Venmo. Oh, that's me moving money digitally. No, it is not because what's happening on the background is that all these banks have their own ledgers and then they all have to meet up afterward and be like, okay, did we get it right? Like, you know, is that how much, like if you subtract that amount from person A who's, you know, sending this amount to person B, then I have to add that same amount to person B. And like, they have to make sure everything's reconciled, right? Like, like essentially on the back end, it's like, not that different from what people were doing 600 years ago with double entry accounting. So here you have something that's truly digital, like literally a digital asset, and you can lose it like a dollar bill from your pocket. You can lose the private keys essentially. And you can actually even lose those private keys just by somebody seeing the private key, right? It's not even about literally like dropping it. Like I said about the cash, it's just, oh, if you expose this, if it becomes visible to somebody else, then they can send the money out of your wallet. So we are literally at the phase where we don't even have kind of the basic infrastructure to make the dApps usable by a lot of people. Um, if you followed any of the scaling debates in Bitcoin and Ethereum and it just, or not even debates, but the fact that a lot of new blockchains are trying to tackle the scaling issue, then you will obviously know that blockchains themselves right now cannot support a lot of users. So just, I feel like, you know, the way that we, the way that I often think about it is, 
back in the early days of the internet, you know, AOL started with what was it like 14.4 kilobytes per second dial-up connection. (laughs) And I remember when, and then it became like 33 or something. And then it went to 56. I remember when I got 56, I was like excited. (laughs) So I like, basically that's kind of where we are with blockchain. So not even at 56, just to be clear, we're definitely at a phase below that, I would say. So, and that's why a lot of people are talking about some of these scaling solutions that are either happening right now or being talked about right now because they know that that is a big problem that needs to be solved for. So I would personally say at the moment that custody and scaling are kind of some of the main ones that I think about. And that's why, you know, when I get these pitches for ICOs, anything that's kind of a little bit more consumer facing, I'm a lot more skeptical of just because I don't think the technology is at a point yet where we can really onboard a lot of users and have them using the blockchain in any really high transaction volume fashion. Yeah. So speaking of scalability there, the the one scalability story that I have not been able to cover as much as I would like is that of Lightning Network. And Lightning Network is kind of a divisive topic. Do you think that Lightning Network is going to solve scalability for Bitcoin as a payment solution? You know, I'm not sure. I haven't done a really deep dive into Lightning Network, I have to say. The main things that I do know about it are that some of the concerns are that it sort of centralizes services, like some of these Lightning companies. It's not like Bitcoin, which is, you know, this peer to peer software, but you end up using like a company for that, I think. So I know that that is one of the concerns. And I know that that is why some of the people that wanted to increase transaction throughput on the Bitcoin blockchain were advocating for doing it directly through Bitcoin itself. The reason on the other side that people were cautious about doing that is that if you wanted to do that, then you would need to do what's called a hard fork in Bitcoin, which had, which ran the risk of splitting the chain. And of course, because the two sides on both sides of this debate got so entrenched, we didn't end up with a fork. <laughs> and that's how we have Bitcoin Cash. So really now we essentially do have these like competing visions of Bitcoin in the marketplace. And so we'll sort of see which one is able to scale better. But another thing that confuses me about lightning a little bit. And I have not, like I said, I haven't done a deep dive, but as far as I understand, in order to open a lightning channel, you need to kind of like put up a little bit of money. So like, let's say you and I are transacting in some fashion. And I think like, you know, maybe the amount that I'll end up paying you is somewhere between like, I don't know, 100 and 500. Well, since I think the upper bound is 500, I should put the 500 in. But then that kind of like ties up the money while we trade back and forth. And so I just wonder how many people are going to want to tie up their money in that way before they close the channel and cash out. So that's another question that I have about Lightning. But it's such early days that there's really no way to to make a good judgment right now. I know that essentially a lot of people don't think it's possible to put a ton of transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain, nor is it necessary. And because of things like environmental considerations and just wanting enough people to be able to run what's called a full node, which is where you basically download the entire blockchain, which is the ledger of all transactions going back to the first transactions in January 2009. 
they want people to be able to do that. And in order to make that happen, it's better to kind of keep the blockchain as light as possible so that it enables kind of more everyday people to do such a thing. And so for that reason, they feel like Lightning has a lot of potential to help kind of ease that bloat basically on the Bitcoin blockchain. Right. And to the $500 locked up point, I think it would be like locking up $500 in a Venmo account. And I use Venmo frequently enough that if I have $500 sitting in Venmo, I don't immediately cash it out. I don't really care because I figure I'll just be transacting with it enough in the future. In any case, it'll that payment channel will has some expiration date eventually whenever the the contract the hash time lock contract expires yeah but the difference is that with venmo you can interact with a lot of different people but with a lightning network aren't you just interacting with the person that you open the channel with well no the idea is that you open the hash time lock contract with one other person is kind of the base case example and the, the idea is that you would I think you can have multi-party contracts, you know, where I could open up a contract with you and three other people, and maybe it's a little more elaborate. And then you can also have other contracts that are off-chain that are opened between you and, let's say, Sharon. And that way I can transact between myself and Sharon by shuttling money through you off-chain. I think one of the big concerns around this is, well, okay, then that leads to lots of off-chain transactions. And some people believe that that is like recreating the banking system. But to some degree, the banking system needs to be recreated, which is what I think you were somewhat alluding to with your discussion with Ari Paul there. Like, okay, you know, we've in the traditional banking infrastructure, we've got security systems and uh, guards and vaults and stuff. And if we're the crypto anarchists, maybe we're critical of those things. But if we're the average citizen, we want those things. And I think what's nice about Bitcoin is you have the option. If you want to transact everything on chain, I don't think there's anybody who has a roadmap that eliminates the ability for you to do that. What we're talking about here is the building out of infrastructure to make things more accessible to other people. Yeah. I mean, what I would say is, I think the people on the big block side say that when we get a lot of adoption, then the fees will go too high if that is the one, the option that you want to pursue, which obviously we did see at the end of 2017 where fees were like, the average fee was like 60 some dollars. So, and go back to your point about how the Lightning Network is similar to the banking system. That's what I meant earlier also about how it does centralize a little bit. So I do think that it's really about what trade-offs you want to make. And that's why we ended up with these two camps. There's one camp that's more willing to make certain trade-offs and not others. And the other camp, you know, goes in the other direction. And so that's why I feel like some people, you know, with the lightning side, they maybe don't care as much that the users get centralized onto these Lightning Network services, but they like the fact that then that also enables people who might want to run a full node to run a full node on Bitcoin. And then on the other side, you have people who say, no, we want everyday consumers to be able to transact on the Bitcoin network itself and not have to use a company at the Lightning level and also, therefore, when they use Bitcoin, not pay high fees. So it just really, you know, but then the ability to run a full node is is impaired. So I think it really just, it just boils down to, 
like there's probably some spectrum and then like half the, not even half, but you know, some portion of people fell on one side and then another portion fell on the other. So it's one of those things where, yeah, like I said, I do not consider myself an expert on lightning. I haven't done enough interviews on that topic at all to really have a strong opinion one way or the other, but I definitely know that here we have two coins in the wild that are directly competing on this very issue. And so we'll see which one prevails. Okay. I mean, that makes two of us in terms of the lack of Lightning Network expertise. Okay. So you're talking there, Bitcoin Cash, the thesis there is that all of the transactions are going to take place on chain? Yeah, I think that's what they think, at least for now. Uh, That's why they have this eight megabyte block. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's another topic I I didn't fully comprehend. I did some shows on the SegWit fork, but can you just like give me an, an abbreviated story about what happened there? Like I I know you just touched on it lightly, but maybe just fill us in on what were the events that led to the Bitcoin Cash instantiation. <laughs> yeah, I mean it goes back to this debate that I just described about how some people think that it's more important to keep Bitcoin decentralized in such a fashion where individuals can run full nodes. I think the other thing that they want to keep decentralized there is mining, which has become quite centralized on Bitcoin. At some point in the past, actually, there was one mining pool that even approached 50%, which in Bitcoin is a dangerous thing because then the network is susceptible to what's called a 51% attack, where some actor can gain control of more than half of the nodes in the network, and therefore they can pull shenanigans with the blockchain basically by excluding certain people's transactions, putting in their own, changing past transactions, etc., I mean, it is a little bit limited, like you can't do a ton, like you just for the amount of hash power required, like you basically could reorg transactions in the most recent blocks, but still it's something that the community is very cautious about. And so because we already do now have these mining pools where they have, you know, like 20, 25, maybe even 30%, the proportions change a lot. There is concern about mining centralization. And so that was another reason why people wanted to keep the block, what's called the block size in Bitcoin, which is, it's like a limit to the amount of transactions that can go through at any given moment. That was their their reasoning for wanting to keep it at that. On the other side, you had people saying, hey, Satoshi didn't even want to put a limit in. He was just persuaded to put one in simply because I think it was Hal Finney was who was this other person. Gosh, I don't even know if he was a cryptographer or what his role was, but he is somebody who had previously also worked on some of the precursors to Bitcoin and got involved with Bitcoin very early. In fact, I think he was the first person that Satoshi reached out to, or, or no, sorry, he, Hal was the first person who responded to Satoshi after Satoshi published the Bitcoin white paper. But anyway, the point is that Hal, I guess, persuaded Satoshi to put this limit in because he said, oh, I don't want people to like spam the network and kind of like overrun it. And so the people on the big block side say, hey, this was never even meant to be here in the first place. And now that we have a lot more adoption, a lot more people are using the blockchain, the fees are going up and it's making Bitcoin unusable for 
certain groups of people that transact in small amounts. And particularly in those tend to be the people who don't have access to the really good financial services that we have here in the US. You know, there are people in developing countries who can probably benefit from Bitcoin more than, than anyone else. And so those people would say that running your own full node isn't that important and that the, you know, just gaining adoption and increasing the limit at a pace that can accommodate all the new growth that might occur, that that's more important because we're at a phase right now where it's so early that the more important thing is just to get a lot of adoption. And like I said, I think some of those people also have concerns that if we try to move people to what's called layer two, which is what you were asking me about earlier, the Lightning Network, then they worry that then it kind of centralizes Bitcoin in a different way, which is, you know, having users interact with companies rather than just peer to peer on Bitcoin. So these arguments literally went back and forth for uh, like two and a half, three years. I mean, it was just, it just was getting intense and it was kind of, interesting and alarming as I was reporting on this because I just, you know, I got interested in what was going on. And then I just kind of kept following all the different twists and turns in the debate. And as time went on, certain people who started off being very diplomatic about the differences and treated this as kind of like an intellectual exercise, after a while, they would say things like, you know, I refuse to work with so-and-so. Like it just got very personal and nasty. And that was how we ended up with this group that wanted to basically split off. And so they finally did and they created Bitcoin Cash and they have a roadmap that... The other interesting thing that they did was the current implementation of Bitcoin has a feature called SegWit, a segregated witness, which is basically a different way of treating what's known as the signatures in in Bitcoin. And I'm not a technical person, so I probably can't describe that too well, but it's sort of like a way of kind of separating out the data so that way it doesn't contribute to the weight of the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, which, you know, as I mentioned earlier, affects whether or not you can run a full node. So Bitcoin Cash also did not adopt SegWit. So uh, they're actually quite different now. It's not only the block size, but but also this feature called segregated witness. And so, yeah, they're both in the marketplace and competing right now. But obviously, Bitcoin has the branding recognition. So, and one last thing that I would add, which is just kind of funny to watch, <laughs> is that <laughs> a lot of people say that Bitcoin Cash is following the the vision in the original Bitcoin white paper, which I like, I think actually a lot of Bitcoin people even agree with this now because essentially the way that the developers of Bitcoin have developed Bitcoin, it's to be more in favor of the digital gold aspects of Bitcoin and the way that the Bitcoin cash people have developed their version of Bitcoin is to be more in the peer-to-peer payment system vision of Bitcoin, which the Bitcoin white paper's subtitle is, you know, a peer-to-peer payment system or something like that. And so oh, the last bit that I wanted to say was, so, it, you know, I will grant them that, that it is probably true that they are fulfilling this vision of the white paper a little bit more closely. But then the funny thing is that 
one of the guys for, uh, who's the biggest proponent, one of the biggest proponents behind Bitcoin Cash is this guy, Roger Fear, who in the early days of Bitcoin was known as Bitcoin Jesus because he was a millionaire when he got into Bitcoin already. And so he had a lot of money at that time to even buy up a ton. And he would just give them out to people to try to like proselytize people about Bitcoin. But the point is, so he owns the domain name Bitcoin.com. And so now this website is talking about how Bitcoin Cash is actually the real Bitcoin because it's like pursuing the original vision. And so there's been a lot of like tussles, you know, some people view it as propaganda and they're really upset that he's doing this. And yeah, so the whole thing is just kind of like, it's just really funny to watch. And frankly, I actually think that if so, I didn't even answer your question because, okay, just to try to wrap this up. Segwit 2x was this point where the the kind of the more entrepreneurs who were concerned about making sure that the the block size remained big enough to accommodate new users they all got together and they said, oh, we want to increase the block size to 2x, but we'll give the the people who want SegWit and Layer 2, like Lightning Network, we'll give them SegWit too, but we'll do both. So they were trying to compromise with the two sides and, you know, bring elements of, of what the Bitcoin people wanted and elements of what the Bitcoin cash side wanted into one chain. And ultimately, they ended up, this is the chain that ended up being what we call Bitcoin today, that they adopted SegWit first. And so the SegWit part of the deal went through. And then the the 2x part did not go through. They were they sort of like chickened out basically to do that because of the fact that it required a hard fork. So that's, you know, even though that all happened in November and, you know, it got decided then that they weren't going to do this fork and increase the block size limit, you still see people arguing about this point all these months later on Twitter and everywhere. And just, and if you look at the Bitcoin subreddit, the BTC subreddit, like they still are arguing about this. And I just, it's kind of ridiculous and funny to watch. (laughs) The fact that Bitcoin is physically centralized like if a government wanted to wipe out all of the miners they would know where to go and this is one of the kind of the issues with bitcoin right now is that it's not actually decentralized at least in the physical sense what do you think would happen if those miners got wiped out if if china decided no more bitcoin mining so i don't agree with the premise of the question cuz they're not all located in one jurisdiction. And so it would actually be quite difficult for all miners to be wiped out. I mean, they like, yes, the majority of them, I think, are in China, but already we've seen that Bitmain is reading the tea leaves and Bitmain is the biggest. They're, they're both a mining equipment manufacturer and they run some of the biggest mining pools and they're based in China, but already we've seen that they are looking maybe to locate to Switzerland and uh, maybe doing some business here in the US. And I know that Bitfury, granted they're small now, but they have recently done a whole bunch of deals and they run mines in, or uh, mining pools in, or not mining pools, but yeah, mines in Georgia, Norway, Canada, Iceland. So already, you know, just with the few that I've mentioned, and there's a ton of Mining also happening in places like uh, New York and, and Washington. And I think, shoot, there was one other state I read about somewhere in the West. I, I don't remember which one it was. But but the point is that I don't think it's possible for 
any one government to shut down all the miners. And I don't think it's possible for, I think the likelihood that all the governments come together and agree to shut down all the miners at once is basically zero. (laughs) Because I mean, we have countries right now that are kind of opening their arms to these mining Miners, so right. I, I definitely, I, I just don't see that happening. Are the concerns around the centralization more around the fact that it's, regardless of how they're geographically distributed, these miners are in the same mining pools? So each mining pool company, so a mining pool is where let's say that you and I, just individuals, want to mine a little bit of Bitcoin, but we don't want to buy a miner because it like makes our home hot and maybe the way that the payout would would occur if we owned our own little mining equipment was that maybe we would find a block like right away, but then not see another one for six months. And then maybe there, then I would get two in a row. So when you join a mining pool, it enables you to kind of like even out the cash flow from what you've invested, right? Because so let's say there's a mining pool that has 25% of the Bitcoin hash power. Then over time, the average amount of block rewards that it will obtain is 25% of all the block rewards being given out. And so if you and I each own, you know, like 1% of that mining pool, then we would get that 1% paid out to us in an even fashion. So that's the kind of motivation to join what's called a pool. So these companies, when they run pools, they often, it's not all their power. Like that company, Bitfury that I just mentioned, they actually are an exception where they don't run a pool and whatever Bitcoins they mine, they keep. But many of these other ones, they run pools where individuals are contributing, but those individuals could choose to go to a different pool if they felt like it. So you know, the the kind of power that the miners have could be limited in that regard because people could vote with their feet. I know that before the SegWit2x debate, there was concern about whether or not the pools would kind of force people to mine on, because there was a question, okay, if it splits, will the miners mine on the 2x fork or on the, on the original fork, which had the one megabyte blocks? And there was a question, oh, if you're part of a pool, will they force you to kind of mine on one chain or another? But the thing is, you know, like I said, like you can switch pools. So in that regard, they don't have, you know, as much control as you might think. They do get to choose, the pool as a whole will choose which transactions from the mempool they're going to work on, right? Like they all agree, we're going to hit up these transactions and this is going to be our block. So they they have some like censorship potential, right? From the the centralization of hash power in those. Exactly. Yeah. And that goes back to what I was saying before about the 51% attack. That is, I think, what people are concerned about is, you know, if any one particular miner were to obtain that level of power, then yeah, they could do whatever they like to probably increase their Bitcoins (laughs) or, or to punish other people in the network. Okay, there's a bunch of other stuff I, I wanted to get to. We're definitely not going to get to everything that I wanted to discuss with you, but just to shift topics dramatically, because you're you're getting a lot of a lot of exposure to the different players in this space, and there are so many curious personalities in the cryptocurrency space. That's one of the things that m- makes it really appealing as a, a journalist <laughs> is the people are so variable and strange and 
powerful and brilliant, and it's really a wide range of personalities. It's really fun to cover. Um, but one area of business that is expanding is that of the crypto hedge fund, and all of these crypto hedge funds got created during this massive bull run-up. And the thing that I don't quite understand about a crypto hedge fund is, in 2018, what is your hedging instrument? Because it seems like most of the crypto assets move in a correlated fashion, and there's no derivatives market that's developed, I don't think. Do you have a sense for what strategy a crypto hedge fund is taking? Is it more like a crypto index fund? So they all have different strategies. And I know that some of the probably more, I guess, prestigious hedge funds are not really actively trading as much. They take a bit more of a venture approach. There are some that do actively trade. But as far as I understand, I think they actually keep quite a large amount in cash or in Bitcoin and Ether itself because of the difficulties right. of keeping a, and the risks of keeping a large amount of coins on on exchanges. You know, I don't have a great insight into whether or not they have kind of fancier tricks for managing big town downturns like this. I will say, though, that definitely... So I wrote this article last summer about all these new crypto hedge funds that were opening and <laughs> the beginning of it was like both sophisticated and unsophisticated investors are getting in this space. And then I said, I guess we'll see which ones survive a downturn. And already a week or two ago, I saw a headline saying like already nine have closed. So definitely there are some people who don't know what they're doing, who try to get in and and realize like, oh, this, this isn't working. Out. Right. But overall, like yeah, I think you're right that there aren't at the moment, especially really good, sophisticated strategies that you can use. There actually there was one shoot that um I'm not gonna remember this, but I there might be a few out there, but I think you're right that like especially at the moment in with the space just kind of as immature as it is, uh, that a lot of them are are just doing things like maybe they buy in at the ICO at a discount because maybe they're funding the project really early or something like that. And then they make money that way or they keep money in cash because uh, of the exchange risk or they're just long-term hol holders and they're going to see how their investment plays out over the long term. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see what will happen when the derivatives market develops. And it makes me wonder, is that what's holding back major financial institutions from getting into this space seriously like do you have a an understanding of how the you know in in mid 2018 what the JP Morgans and the Goldman Sachses of the world how they're approaching this space yeah so a lot of traditional financial institutions are hesitating because the markets are small there's not good custody solutions and so just if you want, especially like recently, we saw that one of the startups in the space that has focused for years on security called BitGo, they recently acquired what's known as a qualified custodian, which is a type of company that I guess complies with certain rules around custodying assets for 
for financial instruments like ETFs and other kinds of other kinds of financial instruments. And there hasn't been a qualified custodian in the space that will custody digital assets until I think that that acquisition occurred. And so just, you know, right now, like there's so few options for managing your risk if you are an institutional player and want to invest in this space or, or you know, complying with whatever regulations. So because we are seeing a number of these custody solutions come online just this year, like Coinbase announced one called Coinbase Custody, but that's only for like hedge funds. And I think the minimum is something like $10 million. And then there's another one, Ledger Enterprise. There's another one coming out called Anchor, I think. Another one that Ari mentioned on my show, Cambrian. So the like literally people are right now building these things that will probably make financial institutions more comfortable with investing in this space. But I think so far for that reason, it's just been like maybe some family offices that have kind of been dipping their toes in. But I imagine once the infrastructure gets built out, then we will see some bigger institutional players get in. I, I know your time is short. I wanted to ask a little bit about your movement into podcasting, your hard right as a journalist into podcasting. And by the way, I think it's it's admirable you, you st- struck out on your own with Unchained and Unconfirmed. You're building your own media enterprise, which I'm I just I'm a big fan of it. And it makes me it reminds me of a, a conversation I had with Brad Stone last year. So he's a, a journalist at Bloomberg and he's a phenomenal journalist. He wrote the Everything Store. He's written a lot of great pieces about Uber. Uh, and when I interviewed him, I asked him, why don't you just start your own media company? Why not take out the middleman? Because I would certainly subscribe to the the Brad Stone channel. But I think, you know, he, he gave very good reasons. The fact that with Bloomberg, you get all of these benefits. You know, you have people around you who can support you. You have infrastructure to support you. You have a steady paycheck, so you don't have to go out like pounding the pavement for advertisers, which is is what I do. I'm sure it's probably <laughs> what you do. Why did you start your own media outlet and what's your you know given your your past experience with Forbes and and other places what's the the pros and cons of striking out on your own so this is kind of an interesting question because i for most of my life most of my professional career i've really liked working on my own and in fact I tend, when I get a full-time job, to not stay very long, which makes my my mom really annoyed at me. But So I started Unchained back when I was a freelancer at Forbes. And that was during the summer of 2016 when the space was just nowhere near as big or as uh, interesting to the outside world, frankly, as it is today. And it just grew kind of beyond my wildest imagination, really. And so even though I did end up going full-time with Forbes last summer, at a certain point, I just suddenly realized, oh my gosh, it makes more financial sense for me to quit and do the podcast, which takes, which does not take five days of work a week, <laughs> than it does to stay in this job working five days a week or even more because I, I was frankly totally overwhelmed there. So, So just like plain numbers wise, it, it just like, it was sort of a no brainer, frankly. However, that said, 
like I said before, I had spent a huge portion of my career working as a freelancer. I just really work best for myself. I don't know exactly why that is. It's not like, like some people, you know, they say like, oh, I have issues with authority. Like it's, that's not it for me, but, but definitely I think if I have some sort of vision for how to execute something, I do much better as a worker than if I'm being told to execute somebody else's vision. Like I, I just don't have the same motivation and drive. So maybe that's part of it. But yeah, I mean, I grew up in a household where literally my parents, there was not a single rule ever. Like I grew up <laughs> with parents who they're like, we didn't like my sister and I didn't even have a curfew. So <laughs> maybe I'm just too used to not having people tell me what to do or something. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, like I, it has not been a question for me, frankly, when I've, whenever I've kind of faced this choice of like being full-time or being on my own, like generally I've wanted to be on my own. When I did go full-time last summer, I did think, oh, I'm going to be able to execute my vision for how to cover the space here at this institution. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way exactly. And so then once I realized that this other road I could go was not only going to allow me to do that, but also be more, uh, that made more financial sense, then, you know, I just immediately was like, okay, this, I have to do this. And I had to do it fast because the crypto space is moving incredibly fast. And I have to say it's worked out quite well. It doesn't surprise me at all. And you're making a great product. And I think many of the reasons for having a overseer as a journalist in the past had to do more with distribution and podcast. You know, we saw this start with blogging. Podcasting is even less of a walled garden than blogging because you're not gated really by Google. In fact, the search experience is just awful, which can work well and can work, or search and discovery, I should say, can work well and it can work against you. But, you know, if you're a rogue journalist, I think generally podcasting is, is a great place to explore because it's uh, so undeveloped. Yes. And interestingly, something that I didn't expect out of this whole thing is that last year people started coming up to me saying, I love your podcast, which was so weird because at that point I'd only done like 25 or 30 podcasts and I'd written like probably a thousand articles. So it was so bizarre, but I think it's such an intimate medium that people really began to associate me with that. And so I, you know, now obviously I have found kind of like a good niche that people are interested in. And then, you know, they, it's something where the work that I put in somehow that the benefits of that accrue to me more than like if I'd written an article, if you know what I mean. For sure. Yeah. And so now it's great because I, like I said, I don't spend five days a week working on the podcast. So I have time to do some other projects that I'm working on, which I don't want to talk about too much. All right. Well, you know, I hope to have you on again in the future as soon as you want to talk more about your other projects. I had about 55 other questions that I wanted to discuss <laughs> with you. But for the meantime, I'll just stay tuned to Unchained and Unconfirmed and hope that my questions get answered there. Thank you, Laura. I love your podcast and I'll talk to you soon. Well, it's been super fun. Thanks for having me. 